welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we call it the 98-2, um, which is 98% attitude and 2% aptitude. That's the rule that my dad said that I was. And uh, at first I thought that he was crazy uh, telling me that I wasn't very smart. But what he was telling me is that my attitude within my life was going to take me everywhere and my aptitude would follow. But I couldn't uh, lead with my aptitude and then follow with my attitude. I always had to lead with that. And that's what we're talking about today. I've got on the podcast the one and only legendary world renowned Mr. Matty Conrad. This hey, young Kelly. has Victory Barber brand and his barber shops. Uh, he's also got Victory Barber brand as far as the, the product line. He's been men's hairdresser, Canadian men's hairdresser of the year multiple times. Uh, he's a philanthropist. But I think the coolest part about him is he's a real dude. Like he's a real guy that is just out there uh, doing great for people. And if you see him, I mean, if you're on this podcast, you know who this guy is. If you have it, don't know who he is, then seriously, you need to wake up, open your eyes, and you'll see who he is. Um, but I love it so much. So, you know, Maddie, thank you again for being on. Oh, man, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's, it's honestly, it's a, a huge honor for me to share this time with you. Well, the, the pressing question for everybody, and everybody's talking about it, I always like to, you know, get the addressed elephant in the room. Sure. Uh, and everybody is wanting to know or, you know, wanting to have some answer to their question because we're all going through the same thing is, mm. um, which is that pressing question of why are Canadians so nice? Oh, um, you know, <laughs> I think it's because our dads taught us when we were young that, um, that it's only going to be one percent aptitude, and it's going to be ninety nine percent enthusiasm. So uh, <laughs> we're just really enthusiastic people. No, you know what it is. Um, I, I think it's because uh, I, I'm sure you've noticed, especially given the current circumstances, that um, that sometimes mutual suffering brings out the best in people. And uh, and we just we live in a harsh environment up here. You know, it's uh, it's cold. There's polar bears walking around on the daily and. We have to drive dog sleds to work. Igloos are a nightmare to try and heat. So it's, uh, you know, we've all, <laughs> all got those, those problems, uh, mutual problems. You know, the funny thing is, I, I, think, I think Canadians, um, I don't know if we're nice. I think we have a, a really good sense of humor about ourselves, though. And so I think it might translate as being just nice because we're, we laugh at a lot of things about ourselves. And, uh, and I, think, I think that really is it. Um, Truth be told, I, I travel a lot for work, like a ton. Uh, it first started just across the country, then, of course, into the U.S. I've been working a number of years now down there quite a bit. And I think, um, I, I, I honestly, I, I've found some of the, the best hospitality and some of the kindest people uh, throughout the U.S. Um, really extraordinary, you know what I mean? Really extraordinary in a lot of areas. Uh, so I think the U S gives itself a bad rap for, for being nice. You know what I mean? I think if we're talking politically, obviously, I think everybody's going to have their opinion about that. But as far as a uh, population base goes, I've run into some really, really nice people in the U S and everybody's always very kind to me down there. So I got nothing bad to say about it. Well, Maddie is very nice to us. Uh, I tell you, um, it, it's incredible. It's incredible to be able to see, I mean, just, just the, the warming smile. Now, a lot of people see you as the brand. They see Victory Barber brand. They see you with the, I mean, honestly, like your bio shots, like your bio shots, dude, make me feel bad about myself. 
Like, I, I'm like, okay. Will you, will you ease up, a brother? Like, ease up. <laughs> you're all, you know, you're showing your boxing. You're showing that stuff. You're letting my wife know that that stuff's possible, man. I'm, I'm trying to get a little, you know, a little soft. Be a sure. And here, oh comes- man, like good lighting really hides a lot of things, man. I got, I got gray hair. I got bags under my eyes. I, I'm putting on right now. I'm on the COVID diet, which is what putting on an extra 19 pounds. That's why we call it COVID 19. And it's, uh, it's, I can't stop snacking. And I was totally unaware of how much I used to touch my face before this. And in fact, I can't stop touching my face now. So it's, it's yeah. a thing though, where uh, photography for me has always been a thing. Uh, it, it was be- well before social media started. I got really interested in photography uh, over 20 years ago now when I first started doing hair. And when I wanted to take pictures of my work, uh, I couldn't find photographers that I wanted to work with, and God knows I couldn't afford it. Like hiring photographers was so expensive, and when you're new at this, you're so broke. And so I would get a camera. Um, you know, instead of a photo shoot, I, I spent money on buying a camera, and I took my own photos. And they were so bad. Like they were so laughably bad. And I didn't understand how a camera worked at all. I didn't understand what lighting was about or any of those things. I just I knew I looked through the camera and I saw what I wanted to see. Then I'd click the button and I'd look at it and I'd be like. Uh, and I, you know, I try again and uh, it just didn't work out until I started learning about those things. But a lot of the time I wouldn't have models. So I would just set it up and I would practice lighting on myself. So I would just like be in a thing and I'd have a remote for my camera, put it on a timer and I would set lighting up and then I would just go into a thing. Again, I was always kind of this loner artist kid, you know what I mean? And that translated into working on my own a lot. And so being in a studio by yourself and just trying lighting scenarios and trying different things meant that eventually I just figured out some stuff that I liked the look of. And I ended up having all these really weird and wonderful pictures of myself. (laughs) So when social media came along, I was very well equipped. I already had a back catalog of stuff. (laughs) These pictures that I was taking where I was like, I can't find anybody to hang out with. So I'm just going to do this myself. That was before selfies were a thing. (laughs) So you were a pioneer of selfies. Let me ask you this: like, um, being like, uh, you know, I'm from California. So you know, yeah. like somebody from California say like, you know, the Lakers. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, do you like the Lakers because you live in California? And sure. I don't like the Lakers. I, I appreciate LeBron. I think he's amazing. Um, yeah. The Steph Curry guy. Oh yeah. Okay, but people think because I'm from California that you know that I claim a certain thing. Um, they do, do they do this with you with Justin Bieber? And oh, they call it like a, a fan by proximity, yeah, right? Like by proximity. You know what I'm sure. saying? So, so people think that everybody in Canada loves Justin Bieber. And I think, I think Canada has like a love-hate relationship or I should say love-hate-love relationship with Justin Bieber because like when he was little and had that like bowl cut and shit, like I personally wasn't a fan because he had made it such a popular look for grown ass men to walk around with like a moppy beaver haircut thing. And we went through that whole thing. And I remember just being like, Oh Jesus, come on now. But um, then he moved down to the like LA and started driving a Lamborghini around and hanging out with dudes named Pooh Bear and acting like kind of a dick. And everybody's like, Oh, he's the bad boy now. But I was like, America, you, you took Justin Bieber, who was a child and you gave him a bag of sugar and a puppy. You know what I mean? What do you, what did you think was going to happen? And then um, his album comes out and it's amazing. And everybody's like, oh, and, and everybody in Canada is like, yeah, he's from Canada. You know, it's like we went literally overnight from being like, well, he's your problem now, America, to being like, he's from Canada. He's ours. <laughs> like, 
I, I've never met Justin Bieber. Uh, he, he has sure gone through a lot of different styles and stuff like that. I, I think, you know, good for him for doing his artistry thing and, and doing his thing. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think we run in the same kind of circle though, <laughs> or, or even really into the same things, to be honest. Like I, I really love, uh, old vintage stuff and, and carpentry and, and shit like that. And he seems like he's more LA club scene to me. So I don't think we're ever going to run into each other. I tell but you, good I, for you, Justin. I don't know if you've done this. Justin, we love you, and we want you on the podcast. So we're going to get Justin. Mm. Yeah, you should really talk to Kelly. He's, he's good people. Yeah, we could. Um, you should just go to that church that he goes to, Kelly. You probably run into him down there sometime. I mean, lots of my friends go to that thing, and they seem to know him on the regular. I'm sure. That would be, that would be <laughs> awesome, man. I, um, I did go down the yummy uh, rabbit hole one night. Like when I, it was coming out, it was about to drop. I was freaked out because I saw it and I was like, what is this? And then I listened to it and I've never been down. Have you been down a, um, uh, a website rabbit hole where you just like, you click on one thing and then before you know it, 45 minutes goes by. Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. And, and the next thing you know, you're looking, you're looking at pictures of celebrities. You can't believe have changed so much or like you know, things like that. You're like, Oh, I wonder what this is. <laughs> you won't believe what this person grew up to look like. You're like, Oh, okay. Click. And, Man, it's brutal these days, isn't it? They suck you in. Absolutely. So do me the favor, uh, Maddie. Take us back because it was great for me. I, I see Maddie Conrad again. Like it's an iconic name. It's a brand. Mm. Those things, which I think. You know, I, honestly, like I, people say that kind of thing, and and it's weird because most people see your outcome, but they don't see your process. You know what I mean? And, and you hit a thing where people recognize the name or recognize you as something, but they know they don't understand the the 44 year process that that took to get to that point. And even for me, it's a hard one to reconcile. Cause I mean, I grew up as a kid that was very socially awkward and um, so much so that I, I, I switched schools like uh, three times I was bullied so badly. And so the name Maddie Conrad was something that used to get like mocked and ridiculed quite a bit. And it leaves those kind of lasting impressions or those lasting things that are, are things you deal with through your adulthood even. But it's really interesting to hear the people say that and be like, oh, the name Maddie Conrad is so iconic. And you think to yourself, like, man, I still hear it as like, Maddie Conrad, you know what I mean? From that little thing. And you think that to where you could possibly end up from where you started, it can be quite a, a remarkable thing. You know, uh, I, I think to any of those kids out there right now that might be listening that are struggling, don't feel cool or don't feel included. Um, let me tell you, like, there's, there's hope. You know what I mean? There's hope beyond that. Like I, I've somehow managed to succeed beyond anything I could have possibly imagined when I was a kid. And, um, and the story of getting there is, is long and arduous, but, uh, if you're going through the shit right now, or if you're going through a bad time, trust me, there is a happy ending ahead for you, you know, just stick with it and, and don't let those people get you down. But when I started things out, it was, um, I got into hair for a hundred percent of the wrong reasons. <laughs> I was a socially awkward kid who was working at a restaurant and all of these unbelievably cool people would come and sit at that restaurant bar at night and they would uh, just talk about their day at work and they had cool hair and cool style. They looked like you, Kelly, you know what I mean? They, they had like such rad style and they were warm and exciting to be around. And one of them was actually a guy named Chris Barron. And uh, if you don't know Chris Barron, Okay, you do know Chris Barron. Yeah, Chris Barron was, uh, is, is the global creative director for Redken. At that time, he was just a salon owner in my town. 
and him and all of his staff would come and sit there. I had a crush on every girl because they were all so cool. They're like rock stars, man. Hairdressers to people that aren't hairdressers are like rock stars to be around, you know, and they're intimidating and awesome. And, and I thought to myself, I want to be like those guys. I want to be like those people. And so I registered for hair school and I still remember the look on my dad's face when we had to have that conversation. You know what I mean? Uh, hey dad, I'm going to be a hairdresser. How so, old were you when you had this? Uh, I was 19. So I was, I was young and, um, and I started, uh, I started hair school and uh, I sucked. I was, I had no sense of fashion or style or what looked good on people or what women wanted their hair to look like. I literally had no idea. I was in so far over my head. I had no idea what I was doing. And I was the only guy. There was like two other guys in my class. They dropped out in the first week because we were doing braids. And <laughs> like girls were all sitting there going like, I remember how to do this from summer camp. You know what I mean? And like, I'm just like, I look like I have two hooks for hands. And I just, I have no, I, I couldn't get my head around this. And truth be told, even by the end of school, I was very ill-equipped. I was, I was really scared uh, by the time I got out of school, because if you really wanted the truth, I graduated hair school without really being able to explain to you what layers are, you know? And, uh, and I think that a lot of people get out of hair school feeling not totally equipped to be hairstylists. And I wasn't. And it meant that I was afraid of every person that walked through the door. Cause I felt like a fraud, you know, here you are supposed to be an expert and people are coming through the door for your expertise and you have so little and you're just trying to get through the whole thing without them finding out, you know, and, and that first client always goes exactly the same for everybody where they sit down and you're having your conversation, you ask them your consultation and you know, they, they, the, the voice in the back of your head only lets you hear things like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. You know, and you're trying to figure out what they're saying while trying not to panic. Your upper lip is sweating and you're trying not to show them that kind of thing. You start your hair. You do the thing you know how to do because uh, there's only one haircut that you really got figured out. And you make some variations hoping that they're going to like it. And then they ask you how long you've been doing this. <laughs> like every single time. And you lie. You lie. Like all of us lied. Everyone, you lied. I lied. We all lied. And the thing about that is it makes you a fraud instantly the minute you lie to these people because you do it to try and make sure they don't freak out and to try not make sure they're not panicking. But the fear that you take away from them becomes your own because then you lied and now you are hoping they don't find out or they hope the next person doesn't find out or someone exposes you for the fraud that you are. And I really realized early on that the best thing to do for that was education. Like if you take classes, the more I learned about, the less afraid I became. And that's been my whole mantra for education now is my whole goal as an educator. Everything that I do in education is simply to try and take the fear away from people um, and try and make, thing, make you less afraid to be behind your chair. And it's also part of a program that I started now, but we'll explain that after. Um, so... I, I would take all these classes. They were really expensive and I couldn't uh, keep up with that as a new stylist. You're broke. You can't afford things. Um, so I would save up money, take a class and then I have to wait a long time. And then I realized that all these companies were looking for people to be like educators. They weren't really looking for educators. They're looking for people to teach product knowledge classes, right? Or PKs. Everybody in the industry hates a PK. Okay. Everybody does. And, and I hate teaching PKs and everybody hates taking PKs because we just hate it. And, but I realized if I did that, I could get free education. 
And so I started, my first job was with um, TG. TG, um, when they had their line going, and, and I worked locally with a lady in Vancouver and was teaching PKs and taking training with her, and I was learning some basics, and then I got really involved with this company called Bumble and Bumble, uh, which was the really early days of Bumble and Bumble, and I used to go to New York and work with some of those guys and took razor-cutting training with these incredible geniuses, and I got to get to be really good friends with some of them. And then eventually I ended up working with um, Henkel Brand, which owns Schwarzkopf Professional and a number of other lines. And I was working primarily with Schwarzkopf as an educator for them. And that went on for about 15 years. And uh, through that time, the thing that I really realized about doing education and, and focusing so much on education and working for other companies is the education industry for hairdressers, it doesn't teach... Um, it doesn't teach you to be creative. It, it actually teaches you to be recreative. And most of the industry and most of our job, if you think about it, is, is, look, is around the idea of being recreative more than it is being purely creative. We're looking at other things and copying them. Or we're looking at other things that people have created and we're translating them and teaching them. And so that's essentially what happened. So I got really good at copying other people, but I got really scared when it came to the idea of being creative myself. Like, I didn't feel like I had much of an internal creative voice or even a significant style of my own because I was so busy trying to fit in with all of these other people. See, the thing about being a marginalized kid, when, when you grow up in that, when, you know, when you're a bullied kid or when you're an awkward teen or any of those things that, that people out there that identify that way, is we start to put way too high a price on the idea of being liked and being popular and fitting in. You know, fitting in is the most important thing, but all that really does is ensure that you're going to be phenomenally mediocre because the most popular group and the most mainstream thing is always going to be the most like each other. Exceptional kids and unique people are seldom celebrated. They're usually, especially when they're young, they're not celebrated at all. They're usually taunted or ostracized or, or marginalized. And so that whole period teaches you to want to fit in. And so I realized that even through the first part of my career being in hair, I was trying to fit in so much into this group of people that were hair educators and into that mainstream education platform. And what I noticed is that things started becoming less and less about education and more and more about rockstar show and about big and flowery and crazy. And people I realized weren't leaving the audience less afraid. They were leaving the audience more afraid. And we were going to hair shows and people were going, yeah, I went and saw some crazy stuff, but nothing I could use on a client. And the more I started to realize how broken that system had become and how I was part of that problem. And my whole reason for doing it in the first place was to first make myself less afraid and then make others less afraid. And so when I realized that I wasn't participating in that anymore, I started to have a bit of a crisis of conscience of why am I participating in this anymore? Around that time is when my grandfather passed away. And my grandfather was like the best. He would love my grandfather. He was the best guy. He was like Mr. Rogers. You know what I mean? He was so gentle and kind. He was such a good man. And, uh, and he had so much integrity. And it was a thing where all these people had showed up at his funeral and they had these incredible things to say about him. And when you have that happen, I mean, I was learning things about my grandfather at his funeral that I didn't know about him in his life. And my dad stood up and delivered a eulogy and he led with this comment um my grandfather's high school yearbook quote right and his his high school yearbook quote like we all get to do this thing in grade 12 we get to write down like a you know the message to future generations and i 
feel bad today because I feel like kids are probably borrowing Drake lyrics and things like that, you know, or quotes from Gandhi so they can look deep and thoughtful. But my grandfather wrote this thing that just slayed me. And it just said this. At 17 years old, he wrote, I will never let anyone be more of a gentleman than I. And that was it. That was, the, that was his whole thing. And honestly, I don't know what it was, but it absolutely cut me to the core. It floored me completely. And there's, a, there's throughout life pivotal moments, I think, happen for, for people and, and moments that you can pinpoint a change of direction in life. And for me, that, that moment that my dad read that was a massive pivotal change for me. Um, started thinking about my legacy. I started thinking about what people were going to say about me or what impact I was going to have the way my grandfather had an impact. And I started thinking about what is it that really matters to me that connects with me on a deeper level, not the surfacey level that I had been connecting with things intellectually and things like that, but what really speaks to you from here. And I started a little bit of an evaluation period after that, and it led me to quit doing education and to close down two hair salons that I owned, and I ended up opening a barber shop, largely because it was a love letter to my grandpa and, and that generation of guys. And largely because I saw a massive hole where, where men's grooming had become either really high maintenance and fussy or the metrosexual, as we were dubbed, or you were a dirtbag. And, uh, or, you know, you would go to like a disposable cheap uh, barbershop and you would apologize for going to a barbershop as if that made you cheap or something. There didn't seem to be a middle ground. And, um, and I saw barbering as something that had a lot more of an impact. I saw the way that my grandfather would go to a barbershop. And I thought about the type of barbershop he would go to. And I thought about the things that were important about that generation of guys, the things that have been lost when the barbershop went into decline, the things about masculinity that aren't toxic in any way, the things that are, the things that are, I think, good. I think the best version of masculinity that I think is important that we don't lose and we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And I started building an idea around that and I became completely obsessed with classic barbering and the heritage of that industry and old school stuff and everything about my grandfather's generation. And, and I just became totally fascinated in a really weird way about it. Like this, I couldn't explain why I was so fascinated about it. And it made me feel weird to talk to people about it because I would just get so nerdy and so excited about all these things until it, it dawned on me and it made me realize that, that when those things happen to you, like those things that you're most nerdy about and the things that you connect with for reasons you can't explain, but you just love them, that's your most true self. Like that's the most true person you are. You, the things that you love, regardless of whether they're popular or the things that you love, even if they're really unpopular, it's just the most true person you are. And to, to be creative, to be a creative artist, you need to connect with those things inside yourself. You know what I mean? You need to connect with those things that make you unique, those things that speak to you on a deeper level. And that's where your creativity really comes from. And at that period, I started doing all these things where, man, like it just got really exciting. And all the work I was doing, I was excited about. And I felt creative and I felt this flow going. And it was just such an exciting time for me to, to be able to do that. Hey, look, I want to share something with you really quick right now. I'm in Vancouver, okay? And every day at 7 o'clock during the COVID crisis that's going on right now, um, everybody goes out on their balcony and cheers for the healthcare workers. That stuff makes me really proud. That's, that's the most proud thing about being Canadian for me right now is that. 
Maddie, this is where I'm going to have a challenge because earlier you said that uh, some of the nicest people in the world were in America. Ain't nobody in America right now cheering on anybody. Uh, I'm telling you, Vancouver is probably one of the coolest cities in the world, too. We used to go up there every year. I, mm. Well, we miss you. Come back. Well, I want to, man. Uh, the, I wonder if we cross paths because we used to be up there every year for the ABA. Um, oh, yeah. Abe, Abe Barron um, and uh, Takashi Kitamura. We would oh, I know Takashi. Yeah. Takashi. Crazy. So take us through that thing. You were uh, where you were was you were talking about being able to, uh, you know, being able to make a difference. Um, and you were you were taking us through, too, as far as that, you know, you had you had jumped into this this barber side. Um, yeah. Barber side with the S, not yeah. barber side with the S. <laughs> well, that was honestly, the thing is, that was a very scary thing to do at the time. In 2010, barbering hadn't become cool yet. You know what I mean? It would, there wasn't this big movement of barbers that there is now. There was old guys chained to a chair, you know, named Sal, and they were waiting to die. And it was it was hard to get people to teach you anything because you'd go to barbers and ask them to teach you, and they'd look at you and tell you to get lost. You know, they were afraid they, they didn't want to teach you anything you're going to take their clients away and there wasn't this thing so telling all these hairstylists and of course I've been doing education I was on stage you know I knew a lot of these other artists and stuff and to look at those people and be like actually I'm going to go be a barber now you know it just seemed crazy to them it just seemed nuts and and there wasn't like a model built for it yet you know and so, um, so I dove into it anyway because something was just propelling me into it and I just felt like the the most honest version of myself doing it you know what i mean uh, and it, it spoke to me on so many levels i was connected to the work i was obsessed with with learning how to do it and i was obsessed with the shapes and the styles even when i started doing the haircuts they weren't popular that was during the bieber thing man like people were still moppy hair ashton kutcher had flicky hair and i was doing haircuts that looked like they belong on my grandpa and people didn't get it and it took a while to catch on, and I was, I'm very fortunate that it did. Otherwise, I'd still be doing weird-looking haircuts to people in my shop, and everyone would still be walking around with faux hawks or something. I don't know. But I, um, I opened the shop, and, uh, and it, it was just me and two other barbers on the first day. And, uh, and I, when I finished building the shop, I was so far in debt that I had honestly started to question my own sanity. I was like, I think I might have lost my mind on this like I went way overboard I went I swung for the fence and I I I wasn't sure if it was the ball was going over or not you know and um, Maddie, so it was let me ask sorry. you a question. yeah is when you say that you went into debt um, because I think a lot of the listeners out there are aspiring owners which if you're an aspiring owner call Maddie and I seriously like call sure yeah it's not all you know lights and glamour and you're the Rockstar, when you said you went into debt, what were the things that you made the decisions on early on to invest in that you now look at? Because I know what my answer is. Yeah. Um, I spent $24,000 in my first salon on the walls, which was yeah. so stupid. And yeah. nobody's ever said, like, wow, your walls are awesome. I've got level five Maddie walls in my, <laughs> in my place, which is casinos. And the reason why I got them is because it was the only term I knew in construction. So when I was dealing with the guys, I wanted yeah. them to think I was, I was like, I just want level five walls. They're like, you sure? We're in a shopping mall. 
Yes. Yeah. And I seriously almost went belly up because of my walls. What yeah. was that you invested in that you're like, eh, maybe I shouldn't have done that? Oh, man. Um, I over-engineered everything. <laughs> like, literally, I went into a brand new building. They required drawings and architectural stuff and all that. I hired a guy, the designer, because I was I got really insecure about my own ability to do it. And then I decided, well, maybe I should get somebody that knows what they're doing. And then it turns out they didn't really know any more than I did. And they did a lot of work that I ended up having to pay someone else to do again. And then I found that the biggest problem was um, when it came down to like the plumbing um, and it came down to like the actual, like some of the structural stuff. Um, an abundance of over design, you know, if you give people like, I just need it to do this and I need it to do this perfectly, uh, they'll run with it and they'll charge you as much as possible. My first shop, my first barber shop, and I mean, I'd, I'd owned a, t a couple of hair salons before this, which I was able to build myself with my friends. Um, my first barber shop of the victory shops cost me over a quarter of a million dollars um, to build out, and I had an $80,000 budget. So there was a lot of debt. And the thing, the thing that's interesting, especially as it is right now, and I think you and I were touching on this earlier, but one of the things that I want to share with people that don't own shops and share with people that do own shops is the understanding that businesses have two phases. Every business has two phases. The first phase is risk. Okay. And the second phase is reward. And the risk phase is totally proportionate to how much money you have to spend to start to get it going. Um, for some businesses, that will be a very short phase. For some businesses, it will be a very long phase. And the reward phase is always at the end. It's never at the beginning. And so when people start out, when people expect the reward phase at the beginning, it's not going to be there. When stylists work at a shop and they see a busy shop that is still new, they're not making money. They're in risk phase. And when it comes down to having to shut down all of these businesses that everybody's been shutting down, owning a shop doesn't insulate you from this thing. In fact, it, it, it actually makes you a lot more exposed because most people are operating for their first five to six years in the risk phase where if everything goes belly up, they're going to lose a lot and they're still trying to make it work. They're trying to pay it off. They're trying to pay their bills. They're trying to pay their staff, all these things. Reward phase usually comes at the very end when you sell it or when things are successful or there's paid off and you don't expand. The bigger your organization gets, the longer your risk phase is stretched out. So you don't end up having uh, insulation just because you have a lot of things. If you grow, 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 the potential for a bigger reward phase is there, but the risk phase is going to be much, much longer. So I've been doing this thing now for 10 years and I'm still knee deep in risk phase because as my thing grows, I just keep growing the companies. I keep growing bigger and we can explain kind of how we've got there. But, but from that very first shop, I was knee deep in risk at the beginning, like neck deep. Actually, I was, I was so deep in risk that before we opened up, I honestly thought that this thing was going to ruin me. I thought I was like, I, I've lost my mind and we might go bankrupt and holy shit, what have I done? And on that very first day, the, the landlord of the building, who has been amazing to me, who has been so amazing to me, um, he brought his whole family down. And they're an Indian family. There was a lot of people. <laughs> and they were lined up. 
And that was day one. Me and three barbers took care of everybody and it kept us busy for most of the day and it worked out. And we thought, okay, but tomorrow, who knows? And the next day, people had walked by and popped in and checked it out. Some people were like, man, maybe I'll get a haircut. Maybe I'll buy some stuff. See, we stocked the place with lots of things. We made it very much so. It wasn't just a barber shop. It was also an apothecary of things for men, like grooming stuff. Because one of the things that I learned, of course, from owning a hair salon in the hair salon industry is understanding that there's a very strong correlation between your success and your ability to be a retail outlet for places. Retail is a very important part of the puzzle. And we were able to, to figure that out because I'd come from that background and I was creating a retail experience for men. And we didn't just have, um, we didn't just have the hair products and shampoo and stuff. In fact, we didn't have any salon products at all. We found stuff that was specifically men's products from all over the world, stuff that was hard to find, stuff that wasn't readily available. We brought in things like buck knives and bow ties and uh, like cool stuff that guys should use flasks and shaving gear and all of this kind of stuff so that guys could, you know, outfit themselves and live a more stylish life outside of the barbershop, not just getting a haircut. And for us, that was a huge part of being able to um, make a go of it as a barbershop. It was, it was very awesome because so many people would come in and shop for the guys, you know, it was like the, the go-to gift place for guys who would go to this barbershop and, and it was great. And as things started to grow, we were in that one shop for six years, just one shop and it was going great. And we were still in risk phase at six years in, but it was get light at the end of the tunnel. At that point it was going well and it was carryable and it took us a long time before we expanded into another shop. We had been approached in that time by people that were asking us if we wanted to do a reality television show. And I looked at my staff and all of them were like, no. So we're like, okay, great. No problem. And, um, and then we, we had been approached to people who wanted to franchise us. And we all agreed that that's not through what we wanted to go either. We just wanted to build community barbershops. You know what I mean? We really believed in the community aspect of our barbershop. We've always been very involved in the community. We do a lot of charity work. We show up. Uh, to the homeless shelter once a month with our whole team and everybody does haircuts uh, in Vancouver every Sunday. Uh, members of my team from my shop in Vancouver are in a place called Oppenheimer Park, giving out free haircuts to the homeless and contributing to their community in any way we can. Um, that's a very important part about barbershops. But before we opened our second one, what we realized was um, we, we had had to switch early on from a walk-in model where people would just walk in off the street. We had to switch to a appointment model and one of the things that really sucks and one of the things I want to share with you guys, especially if, you know, as it comes to running a shop is that um, the exclusivity economy is over. Inclusivity is what we're about now. And the idea of being of benefiting from being exclusive is not nearly the benefit that you get from being inclusive and inclusive means saying yes. Inclusive means being welcoming. And so when it comes to having people come in, you're trying to reduce the amount of words they hear that relate to no. Okay. So there's a lot of different formats for no. Okay. Um, when people walk in the door, uh, let me give you an example. I actually recently got to be a secret shopper at a shop in Dubai that I was teaching a class in and I got to go there and be a customer. I really love being a customer, especially when they don't know who I am. And so I walk in the door and the first thing that the girl says to me from behind the counter is, can I have your name, please? Points for that. Points for that. Because so many times I walk into shops and they look and go, do you have an appointment? First words out of their mouth. Do you have an appointment is just a version of no. 
It's just, you don't belong here, or have you played by the rules, or have you followed our instructions that you're cool enough to be here? You need to understand how intimidating shops are for people to walk into. People, naturally, everyone's insecure. Every person on earth is insecure. And you have no idea how intimidating your shop is to most people, or how intimidating you are to most people, because... Like, we're just so used to it now. It's so normal for us. But for most people, they're like that 19-year-old kid working behind a bar at a restaurant that was just intimidated by all of them because you're like rock stars. And so the, the idea of being welcoming, like, can I have your name, was the best thing to, to answer because it was like, oh, that's inclusive. You just want to know my name. No problem. It's like, hi, my name's Matt. And they're like, great, Matt. How can I help you? Awesome. Points for that too. You know what I mean? How can we help you today is great. You're on my team. You're trying to, you're trying to get me in the door. You're not trying to be like, hold up. Are you cool enough to be here? And so things like that were really important to us. We, we wanted to make sure we were removing those barriers. So instead of making an appointment schedule, what we did is we started offering something called a complimentary call ahead service, where essentially if you called ahead, we would hold your appointment for you. And if you called ahead, we could tell you when you would be able to come in. And instead of having to wait, you'd only have to wait maybe five, 10 minutes instead of like two hours, which was the average wait time at that point. So we were providing it as a service to people rather than telling them they had to make an appointment. We were providing them a service. So it was a complimentary call ahead service. Let me tell you, that went really well. Okay. And so eventually it just was the easy, smooth transition into making people um, regular appointments. And they were got used to that and, and that you know, that shock and awe thing didn't happen. But what we noticed was that the most people that were coming in looking for walk-in appointments were late at night. It was guys that were coming in after work at 5 p.m. And regularly between the hours of 5 p.m. and 7 p.m. when we closed, we would be turning away five times as many people as we were during the other hours. And so to answer that, what we decided to do was um, build a walk-in shop that opens in the evenings. Now, we realize that sitting around in a barbershop for two hours is completely boring for people. And no matter how good the haircut is, if you're in there for two and a half hours, you're still walking out unhappy, no matter how good your haircut is. And so what we did is I partnered with a friend of mine who had reached out to me to see, hey, would you be interested in doing a joint venture together? He owned this motorcycle cafe that was really cool where I built my motorcycle and we've been good friends for a long time. And we decided we wanted to build a place that was kind of like a cool dive bar. And we put a barber shop in the back of it. Okay, so this place is open at 5 p.m. It serves like a really cool gourmet hot dog menu, which is amazing. And cans of blue ribbon and all, you know, Coors Banquet. And so, like, it's a really lowbrow, like, cocktail bar, basically. And we've got, like, old vintage video games and stuff like that. And it's a really cool aesthetic. I, I got to design the aesthetic very much around, like, the kind of feel that our barbershop has. And then in the back of it, we made this little two-chair barbershop that's walk-in only. And people can go in there and they can take a number and then wait for their turn. There's one or two barbers working there at night. And, um, and then they go out and hang out in the bar. And so they go wait in the bar and they'll have a couple of drinks and maybe a hot dog. And then the next thing you know, they're walking in two drinks deep, getting a haircut. And they're walking out tipping probably a little better than they would have tipped. A lot happier, a lot easier going. And suddenly, you know, their $30 haircut just became a $75 bill or an $80 bill. And they're walking out with a smile on their face. And I thought to myself, well, this is maybe genius. And it became really, we, we, we thought at first it would become like the place where people would just go and it's like a waiting room for the barbershop. But then the bar became really popular because everybody thought it was like, well, that's the most hipster thing I've ever heard of in my life. You know, like a barbershop and hot dogs and video games. 
doesn't make sense, but it became crazy popular. And now every night it's from the time we open, like it's lined up out the doors. People are just into it. And so that became our second shop is like a little satellite shop. And then, um, one of our, uh, my, my first apprentice, uh, had, we found out had been driving, uh, two hours a day, every day from where he lived to come to work at our shop and decided that he wanted to open one in his own town. And, and he asked us if we would consider, um, partnering with him on it. And we're very much about promoting opportunities for our team to grow. Uh, he took a lot of initiative. He was a good guy. We, we, he put in an enormous amount of effort and especially because he started there as an apprentice and he did it in a way that earned the respect of every person in that shop. And I think that when you are an apprentice these days, um, when you are coming in, I think you cannot underestimate how important it is to earn the respect of your coworkers because they're the ones that are going to teach you how to do this. They're the ones that are going to teach you how to be successful at this. And they'll do it if you have a good attitude and you're willing to do the work and you let your ego stay out the door. And he did. He, he exemplified that. His name's Sugar. We love that guy. And he's now an owner of one of our shops. He owns one of the victory shops uh, with us as a, as a partner. And he's amazing. And he's just come from zero into doing such an amazing job running the shop, the Victory North shop that he has. And I'm really proud of that guy. And then we opened up Vancouver shortly after that. Uh, we're a company that had um, reached out to me because they had tried to copy our business model, but I don't think really understood um, what running a barbershop is like. And they got in over their heads and they reached out and said, hey, do you want to buy this from us? And I, I came in to look at the shop and I said, wow, you really, really look a lot like my shop. And they, had, they admitted, they're like, yeah, we kind of based it on yours. <laughs> so... So we took it over and, uh, and then I moved to Vancouver. And so that's where I am now. And, uh, and shortly after that, um, I had been doing a lot of uh, education and a lot of um, work with product companies and things uh, that were asking me to do creative director work and offering me all these big jobs. But I kept looking at their products and there were never things I was excited about or really believed in enough to put my name on. And it was at that point where somebody had come and I'm not going to name the, the company, but one of these companies that was launching a big men's line came and offered me like a fuck off amount of money. You know what I mean? To, to do, to do a job I didn't want to do. And I felt that moment of crisis that I had back when I was doing um, hair, you know, before my grandfather, uh, you know, when his thing came along, it's, you know, that I'll never let anyone be more of a gentleman than I. And I realized that no matter how much money that was, I couldn't do that job and respect myself because I just didn't believe in the product. And as at that moment, I realized I had to start making my own. And I quit my very lucrative jobs working with other companies where I was getting paid a lot of money and traveling around and having all that stuff taken care of to enter yet another massive risk factor and a huge other risk period, which is starting a product line. And let me tell you, the, the risk timeline on that is a lot longer than it was for a barbershop. And the amount of investment is terrifying, but it's fulfilling. You know, the, the work I'm doing and the products I'm developing and the brand, um, the brand ethics that I'm trying to build around it and the culture that I'm building around it to me is very satisfying because I, I saw a lot of things I didn't like in big companies when I was working for them or big corporations, the way they behave. And I decided I'm not going to be that. And, um, and we have a very small company, but we, we've gotten a really amazing community 
already and and we're trying to do really amazing things in the community and for the community as well and so it's it's been a pretty crazy ride um but man uh i'm one of those people that lacks the emotional ability to like um i don't have the mechanism uh, where you look back on things so like telling that story and like you don't, I, I never, I'm never looking at the things in my rearview mirror and the things that I've achieved. I'm always looking at the next thing. You know what I mean? I'm always looking on to the next thing and, and where, where it's going. And so sometimes when you, when you really sum all those things up, it gets, you think to yourself, how did we do all this? <laughs> like we're really small. How do we do it all? But the, uh, the product line, now that we have the Victory Barber and Brand product line is, is, um, about 90% of my job now is, is, um, spearheading that I do all of the development. I do all of the packaging. Um, I design everything. I do all the photos. I do all the creative work. I do all the marketing. I, I, there's really, it's, it's me and a, a very small group of people, uh, you know, one other full-time employee and, and a couple other people that contract some stuff for us. And, uh, man, it's, um, it's a giant, uh, undertaking. You know, we started with three products. We now have, uh, 12, and, um, the, the response has been pretty amazing. Uh, you know, it's, we've been at all the shows and we've been invited to do main stages for some of the biggest shows in North America. And then we started getting invited to all the big shows around the world. And that's crazy. Um, and then this COVID thing hit, you know, and it really seemed to put the brakes on everything for everybody. And, uh, I was really watching a lot of, um, Instagram as you do, you know, it, it's, it's, it's impossible to not like when, when everything's going crazy to not try and see what is going on with everyone and take a temperature of it that way and see how people are being affected. We shut our shops down really early. Um, we shut our shops down on uh, March uh, 13th, 14th. Um, so we're, we're in a few weeks deep now and, uh, and it was a really hard decision and we made it as a team. My whole team was behind it. Um, we didn't make it in spite of them. We, we let them have a hundred percent of the say and they felt that that was the right thing to do. And so did we, so we closed our shop down and, uh, and I, you know, like I say, we're still in the risk phase of a lot of that, which means that we're on the hook for an awful lot of money every month for shops is, you know, we have, we have 42 empty chairs and, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of responsibility to keep those things going until this is over to make sure that they all have jobs to come back to, and uh, so we're doing that as best we can. And um, I was watching everybody the way that shops were responding and people were reaching out, and I noticed there was just this gaping chasm where leadership should be from our associations, from our our barbering uh, boards, you know, from from the health department that there just didn't seem to be. Um, much in the way of, of conversation around barbershops and hair salons, you know, um, it seemed to be kind of a free for all and it was up to the responsibility of the individual business owners. And so there wasn't much of a unified kind of voice of this isn't safe to do. We need to shut down. And we were kind of forgotten about. And, um, that was a really interesting thing to experience because I, I mean, a lot of the conversation in the last couple of years has been around legitimacy of licensing and, you know, people are hashtag licensed barber versus unlicensed barbers that were getting shunned and, and kind of pooped on. But but really, when it when push came to shove, I didn't see anybody from the Barber Association stand up and say, hey, look, here's what we need to do. 
um, or, or anybody take charge or communicate those things out. And that was really disappointing. And one of the things I've learned about myself is that in the absence of leadership, I'll take the reins. Um, I, I don't know what it is, but in the absence of leadership, I always feel the swell of responsibility to do so. And maybe because I've been doing this for a long time. Or maybe it's because there are people that look to us to lead some of the people that have been doing this for a while or have a recognized name or a platform. And I recognized that I had a platform and I started deciding to use that um, to hopefully be a positive influence and, or at least a responsible one. I saw a lot of people being really irresponsible with the influence that they yield, encouraging people to do house calls and do all these things. And I, it was very dangerous. It, it, it gets a wrong message out. Um, there's a lot of misinformation out there right now. So I was trying to be a credible voice of information or reason. And, um, and I was watching these people and so many people were reaching out to me and hurting. And I was saying like, please stay at home. The faster we stay at home, the faster this will be over. And I would get messages from people going, you just don't even know what it's like. You know, you're so privileged. You have no idea what it's like to not be able to work. And it's like, I do know what it's like. And I am, it might seem like I'm privileged, but I'm, we're all in the exact same scenario right now. We're, the circumstances are slightly different, but everybody is faced with their own preservation right now. Everybody. And the thing that I realize is that a drowning man will pull under everyone within arm's length in the interests of his own survival. It's a primal thing. That's what happens. People do that and they can't help it. And they can't help but cause damage to everyone around them when panic sets in. And so more than anything, I've been trying to keep a calm and eat steady voice, but so many people were reaching out and going, look, I, you know, I, I just don't know what to do. I, I can't, I can't pay my bills. I can't pay my rent. Uh, you know, these, this is going to ruin me, all these things. And I realized that sitting and telling people to stay home when they didn't see any other options was just not responsible. Uh, it, it, well, it might've been responsible, but it wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. It, it's, it, you don't get the desired result from simply trying to shame people into things. Right. And I saw so many other people with platforms doing just that trying to make people feel ashamed for going and trying to survive. Um, and I think that was wrong. I think that was just, I'm not here for that. I'm not here for public shaming. It's certainly not my intention. I just want people to understand the seriousness that we're facing and how by cheating and doing things just for sneaker money is harming the industry and harming all of us by putting us at a longer and longer delay for when we can get back. And I know that seems like a very hard thing to swallow for people that are in a situation where they're already fighting for their own survival. So I came up with an idea when I took stock of the things that I could do with what we've created. And, um, and I don't, like I said, have a big bet of money to give out. Otherwise I'd help as much as I could. But what I do have is a lot of inventory. Um, I had a bunch of products that I, I mean, we built this product line, we've been rolling with it. And now I just have a, a big warehouse full of products. And what we decided to do was instead of having a traditional model where people will buy products from us and then put them on their shelves and try and sell them where they assume risk and shipping and a bunch of other things and waiting and then having to hope that those products sell and, and also having to have the money up front to do that and stuff. We decided that we were going to partner with people in a very different way. Anybody that is shut down and is unable to operate right now, we've extended an opportunity for them to register with our company where they'll be given uh, an individual code and they can encourage their clients to, instead of doing house calls and dropping products off and things like that, they can just buy them directly from us and we'll send them the money. 
So what's happening is people are in fact um, just using a code. There's no investment. There's no money that they need to put up. There's no risk they need to assume. And they can use a code to, to promote to their clients. So when their clients buy them from us, we'll ship them. We're covering the shipping costs. We're covering all the logistics. We'll ship them to the person and then we'll give them the profit that they would have gotten from having that product in their shop. So we'll give them 50% of the proceeds of that. We'll go directly to them in cash. So we're doing that through PayPal. And is it might not seem like a lot and, and uh, it's, it's a crazy thing. Um, and I don't see a lot of people stepping up in other ways to do that, but I knew I had to do something. And I've been really encouraged because in the first 36 hours, we've already raised over a thousand dollars to give to people. And, um, and we're trying to offer an opportunity for people to get help and survive for, from what we're able to offer. You know, uh, I, I'm sure 50% might seem to some people not, not very much, but the logistics of it is a little crazy because you have to understand in Canada, shipping is very expensive. And it cost me $16 to ship a $22 bottle of, or tin of pomade across the country. And if I'm giving away $11 of that now, now to, to fulfill these orders, it's costing me $7 per order. That, that opportunity is not going to stay open for very long if that's the case. So we've made a, 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 an opportunity for people to get free shipping over $50. Um, we don't charge shipping to the barbers. We charge it to the end consumers. So it can be their choice if they want to get free shipping or not. And I've been really encouraged to see people wanting to support barbers, support their stylists. It's open to anybody who wants to participate. We're not excluding anybody from this. We really just want to help the industry in any way we can. It's just been an industry that's given me everything. And the support that we've got is insane. And to not step up in its moment of need is just something I'm, I, I, I couldn't imagine not doing. So we're, we're doing uh, what we're able to do. I go in every day. I, I package up orders and I ship them and by myself. I'm still socially isolating <laughs> by myself in my barbershop. So it's, um, yeah, it's been what we've been able to do for the time being. And, uh, and hopefully this thing is not going to last uh, too, too long, but I, I do love a good comeback story, you know? So I have a feeling that our industry is prime for one after this thing. Well, Matty, when I want to, I want to move backwards because I mean, here sure. in, dude, I can seriously, I could, uh, and I think everybody listening, I mean, we just want to hear more Maddie. Like, we just want to hear more Maddie because the more and more that we hear, the more and more that we have this almost renaissance man that, I mean, let's go back, right? So yeah. if you were a kid and you were, you know, you said you were socially awkward. You were, uh, you know, you were bullied. I would like to hear, you know, a specific instance, too, of that, you know, something because it, I think it gives it legs. It helps people to understand that if they're going through those things. But here's this kid that went through those things. And yeah. now, um, I think that you always have a fork in the road, right? So yep. generally the abused become mm -hmm. the abuser and very seldom do they make a change and make a difference. You mm -hmm. make that difference. Why is that? Like, where did that come from? I mean, was that, was that ingrained in you? Did you see it from your parents? Did you see it from your uncles? Your, you said your grandfather was a big influence for you. But I think, I think our grandfather's generation is particularly, I mean, a lot of those guys were part of community outreach uh, groups. You know what I mean? They belonged to like lodges or community projects and things like they came from a generation of people that went through a thing like what we're going through now. And on the other side of it, 
realized how important it is to support the community and support each other and all and, and do what you can to help your fellow man. And, and I think the, the reward in doing that is, you know, doing it is its own reward, really, you know, the, the things that you do for yourself to try and make yourself happy to try and make yourself successful and all these things, they're ultimately not particularly fulfilling. You know what I mean? The, the things that I find more fulfilling are the things that you're able to do that affect uh, other people. You know what I mean? The, the, the good you're able to do for other people, uh, I know is a thing that is ultimately more fulfilling than the, th- the good I do for myself. That was modeled for me for sure. You know, um, I think, I don't know if it came out of a place of, of being an, a, a bullied kid. Um, I think for that, those are personality things that I think develop um, rather than moral things. You know what I mean? I I was raised with a a, a particularly deep rooting in a moral center. You know what I mean? We, we were uh, my family, very um, religious family. You know, we, we grew up in, in, you know, going to church and, and I think I grew up going to a Christian school until I was, you know, until I switched because ironically I was bullied there probably more than anywhere else. And, uh, and it turned into a thing that I just, um, I just ended up, uh, I think always having that, you know, and, and understanding that the tenets of that are, are a way to a good life, you know what I mean? And, 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 um, thoughtful living, I think there, there is a, I, we can get into a deep thing on that. That might be a whole other podcast, but I think that the bullied thing, um, I think led me to uh, be, sensitive to the idea of, of people that are suffering um, and, and sensitive towards people that are being bullied. And uh, um, I think the natural tendency to want to defend those people or stand up for those people, um, I think is a thing that just gets ingrained in you. But again, I think also the desire to fit in and be liked and the desire to be um, vindicated, I suppose, you know what I mean? There's, there's this, this thing when, when you're faced with what feels like injustice um, that you can't explain and it doesn't seem to have much sense or reason, I think there's this desire for vindication. And I'd be lying if I said that some of the motivation for my own success hasn't been to prove others wrong. You know, in some way, those kids that look at you. And, and I've, I've often said, and this is a funny thing, I was like, very few things on earth feel as good as proving a motherfucker wrong. You know what I mean? And... And there are just moments like I, 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 and I remember having this, so many people have reached out to me and be like, I'm thinking about opening a salon. Can you give me advice? And my, I have this thing where I just look at them and I say, don't, don't do it. You'll never make it. And they're like, what? And they thought I'd be so supportive. And I said, don't do it. You'll never make it. And here's the funny thing about it is, is I'm not doing it because I think they won't make it. I'm not doing it because I think that they're, uh, incapable or because they'll suck or because it's going to be a failure. In some cases it might, but I know that in the times when you're really struggling through that, sometimes the only motivation you have is to prove that one person wrong about you. And sometimes that's enough to gird up enough of whatever is inside of you to toughen the fuck up and make it through what you need to make it through just to prove that person wrong. Then honestly, like use it as motivation if you have to, you know what I mean? And there are those vindicating moments in life where you become your own hero in a way, you know, where, where a part of, part of dealing with abuse as a kid or part of dealing with um, bullying as a kid, when you become an adult is learning to love yourself and learning to love that kid, 
and not look at that kid and resent that kid for not being cool enough or not being good enough or not being enough of what you need him to be in the moment and just loving him for who he was, you know, and acknowledging that it's okay. Like you're okay. Everybody's okay. Like most people, when it comes to bullying, it was never about them anyway. It was always about the insecurities and the problems with other kids. It was not necessarily about them. You know what I mean? And to me, the kids that went through that kind of stuff, they turned into the most awesome adults. They turn into the people that I just adore and I just love the most. And I love seeing them do their own unique thing. When I see kids these days, like teenagers, especially that are just doing their own weird thing. Holy shit. I just want to go and give them a hug because they're going to be the most awesome adults. You know, when they're just, they don't care about what everyone else thinks and they're just out doing their own thing. Totally unaffected by what everyone else thinks or says. I'm like, God, I love that. You know what I mean? I find that so inspiring and so awesome. And I think that more kids should understand the value of that, you know? So I guess that's a long winded answer, but <laughs> I think it's but yeah. Yeah. Here, man. I mean, you are, uh, you know, you're, you have so many aspects to you. And I, I love the fact that, um, you in, a, in a, a, almost a direction, like a, a thought process in your head of like, Hey, I don't want to be like the crowd, right? Mm. You have become, and I watched this at BTC. It was the first time that I got a chance to be able to be around you. Uh-huh. You were the coolest guy That's in the fine. room. <clears throat> you were the coolest guy in the room. <clears throat> it wasn't because you were trying to be the coolest guy in the room. It was because you were wanting, and now I know it because hearing you, but because you were just truly wanted to be authentically you, and if you didn't really care if anybody else liked it. And I think that's a, a huge thing. And a, a lot of kids out there, you know, especially young kids, um, especially in the barber side. Um, I keep saying barber side. It sounds like the, 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 <laughs> I know what you're saying, though. The barber, the, the barber effect, A lot of kids want to have the bravado, want to have the stuff. And it's amazing because, like, again, when I saw you, you walked out on stage. I remember watching you and you came out and you cut and you did your thing. But you spoke to the audience almost like they were in your living room. How have you mm. been able to keep? Like, because, I mean, as much as you could try and deny it, like when I say like the world right now, Mary Conrad, you're like, that sounds kind of weird. It, as much as you can say that, I yeah. mean, really, it's, it's there. Well, and, I, think, I think the thing is, it's, it's I mean, the, the connectivity that we have now or the ability to connect with people that we have right now is greater than it's ever been, you know? And as much as people feel like, I, I know it's common to hear things like, well, we're so connected, but we're so separate these days. Or we're so, you know, we're so alone. I don't feel it. I mean, I, I certainly have moments where I feel lonely and things like that. But, um, and, and it is weirdly isolating when people look at you as an icon or whatever. It, it can feel very isolating. But when I'm on stage, I feel so connected to every person there because I'm there for them. That's it. I'm not there for any other reason than them, than every person in there, every person that wants something that wants to feel less afraid, that wants to just maybe laugh or be entertained or whatever. I'm a hundred percent there for them. Like there's this thing. Um, I I've been talking to my team. I have a small team of people that I've been developing on my own that are not influencers. that are not big names on Instagram and stuff. They're just people that I think have, an honest heart for education and honestly love our industry and love what we're about. And I've been working with these guys. And the thing that I often say to them is I look, you, you can be, you know, you can be a, a star on stage, but you become a legend on the floor. And 
the reason why I say that is because connectivity, like I say, like exclusivity isn't the model anymore, man. It's inclusivity. Inclusivity is the new currency for me. Because I remember coming from a generation of hair artists that would get up on stage, do really cool things, be really elusive and be really disconnected and really far away on stage. You didn't get to talk to them. You didn't get to see them. You didn't get to touch them, have a conversation or connect with them at all. You just got to admire them from afar. And they liked that. They liked that level of elusiveness because it made them more mysterious and it, you know, it made it easier to keep the illusion of that up. I don't think that exists anymore. I, I really don't. I, I don't think there's a, uh, I don't think there's a payoff for that anymore. And uh, truth be told is it was never me. It, it's never going to be me. I'm never going to be that guy. Cause I, I don't believe I'm that guy. I don't want to be that person. I, uh, I love to connect with people. Like when I met you, like right away, I knew who you were right away. I, I follow you on online. I know who Kelly is. And, and it was cool to actually get to take a moment in a room full of people and just connect with you for a second and just be like, Hey man, it's really nice to meet you. And I recognize how important that is for people and how important it is to me. You know, I'm going to, I got like here, uh, there we go. That's a little more lit up. Um, how important it's been to me in the past to meet people that I look up to or that I respect or admire and to have them be warm and take a moment and connect and really make me feel like they're listening to me or, or, you know, make you feel important um, is such a, a big part of it. And it's such a, important part i think of having that connection and having this social community that we have now um and understanding that every number that is on your instagram feed it becomes a, a you know the the big numbers and stuff they just become like this digit you know like this on mass body but understanding that each person represented there has a life just as rich and complicated as your own and has needs and insecurities and triumphs and challenges and talents and shortcomings. All of us do everyone. And it's interesting. Um, when you, when you start to look at that and start to realize the, the, the ability that you have to, like I say, take away fear for people or, or to just take that second to make them feel important and make them feel seen and heard. Um, whether you're standing on a stage or whether you're standing right in front of them in a, in a room, you know, I think that that's, probably the most valuable thing that you can give a person beyond just, you know, some techniques to do haircuts. You know what I mean? I think about the things that have real impact in people's lives. And for me, it, 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 it's never just the haircut. It's never just the information. It's never just the joke that I'm making. It's the ability to connect with them and make them feel understood and make them feel like they belong. Have you ever like, I mean, have you ever noticed how much more normal you feel at a hair show? Yeah. You know? <laughs> I tell you, when I met you, man, that's the most insecure I had been in a long time. Seriously. I'm not just saying that, uh, you know, just being around yourself because it's really cool to meet you. It was really cool to meet you. But I, I went to that show by myself. Like I oh, talked okay. to Mary. I, I talked to Mary um, mm -hmm. and I was texting her and she's like, hey, are you coming to my show? And I was, and I was that bonehead that texted back and I wish I could have taken my text back. I texted back what show? And she was like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Right? Like I'm that idiot that okay. to Mary Rector, one of the biggest names in the beauty industry and behind the chair, biggest yep. show in the hair industry. And she's like, you coming to my show? Uh, what show Mary? And then I acted like I was joking. And then she's mm -hmm. like, are you kidding me? And I said, no, I'm just joking. You know, and it's like, well, I'm coming. 
And it was like two days later in San Antonio. Mm -hmm. Well, I go to my wife and I was like, Mary Rector just invited me to her hair show. Should I go? And my wife's like, yeah, go. So I hop on a plane. I come by myself. Um, I'm sitting in the room and it's a different, it was a different world. Like, you know, and it was so cool to be in that insecure part of it because I got to have genuine connections mm -hmm. with the um, got to meet yourself. I got to meet Philip Wolf. Really, really cool guy. Oh man, Philip's a good friend. I love that guy. Hey, I, I talked to Philip, and honestly, I want Philip on here too because I want sure. real people. Um, yeah, I talk very to be into it. He'd be a great conversation. He's a really interesting guy. Dude, Tom Bachik. You know Tom Bachik, yeah. I do. So Tom, and we're gonna have Tom on it, and I was so insecure, but it was so cool because how warm you were, and I remember where your stage was. And it was like, you stopped, like you stopped and you really spent time with me. And for those of you, honestly, that see Maddie at a, at a hair show, you see him out and about, you see him on Instagram, you see him on all these places, please, like, if you haven't already in this hour um, that we get to spend with him, approach him. He's a real dude. Like, I oh, want to yeah. play pool with you, man. Do you play pool? It seems like you play pool. Do you play pool? Oh, I'd be into pool. Yeah, I'm down for a good time. Don't tempt me with a good time. Do you play? Do you play pool, though? Are you like, is that your thing? Uh, look, I'm not going to say that I play pool well, all right? Okay. I, I, I know the concept. I've played. I dabbled, but I'm not, like, extraordinary at it. Okay, what is that thing? Like, I'm, I'm a, like most uh, hairdressers uh, don't do this, but I'm a huge bowler. Like, Oh, no way. Dude, I bowl, man. I mean, my, you know, high, my high is 273. Holy um, you, know you actually bowl. You're a good bowler. I got the like big Ern McCracken uh, wristband that I hold. Um, you know, I'm in, and I'm I'm all about it. You know, what, I'm saying? Uh, what is that thing that Maddie does? What do you do, man? That you're is like non hairdresser. You know what I'm saying? Oh man, uh, I mean, like activities wise, like I love to. I like. I really enjoy boxing. Um, you do boxing, okay? That's I, I love. I love boxing. I love things like that. If it's activities, but like. Honestly, like if I have a secret superpower, um, it's like carpentry. I, I like to make stuff. Um, and one of the things I find that's really interesting, my, my job in, in recent years has become a lot more like virtual in the sense that I'm, I'm making stuff that is essentially is just a bunch of digital information and not like a real thing that I can hold in my hands. And I realized that for my own sanity, how badly I need to regularly do things and make things that are, are physical and real, you know, like I love to create stuff um, and, and make things. I think I, like I used to play with a lot of Lego when I was a kid, you know what I mean? Like I was always that Lego kid. And so I think that just carried over where I just, I, I like to figure out things and figure out how I could make something or make it work out of unique materials and stuff and, and try and make something kind of cool. So um, that served me really well over the years when it comes time to like doing that sort of thing. But that that's that's probably like my superpower when it comes to like what else I do well. Uh, geez, I don't even know. I I think I'm one of those guys that's like frustratingly pretty good at most things, but not like exceptional at anything. Exactly. <laughs> especially hair. Like <laughs> I'm like especially hair. I'm like I've always found it so surprising that I've been so successful at this because like I honestly feel like I'm a pretty mediocre hairstylist. <laughs> so. With a lot of enthusiasm, with oh, a lot of ninety nine percent enthusiasm. Maddie, when you see you in person, you're not a uh, you're not uh, like you, you you talk uh, you know, but you're 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 incredible, man. I watch you. Thanks, buddy. Uh, when 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 you're when you're looking at it too, you were talking about motorcycles, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, I love motorcycles. 
Are we talking uh, like kind of crotch rocket stuff? You talking cruisers? You talking? Like- no, no. Actually, you know what I ride? Um, I have a 1942 Harley Davidson that was from World War II, and it's uh, it's the most terrifying bike I've ever ridden in my life. It it feels like it's trying to kill you, and it has uh, a suicide shifter. So it's got like a tank shifter. It's a three speed with like a foot clutch, and it's it's like it's it's a you have to really learn how to ride a motorcycle when you, when you ride this thing. Cause it's like completely different than other bikes. And it sounds like a tractor as it's going down the road and it backfires loud. <laughs> it's like, it's just a big old monstrous machine. And I love it. I love it. We call her Jolene. So her name's Jolene, my friend uh, from New York, a friend of mine named her Jolene. Cause she's a good looking man stealing woman. And so it, it's kind of great. Cause it's just, some of the happiest things I've, I've had done on my own have just been on the back of a motorcycle where you have those moments where you can't take a picture, you can't do anything, you can't grab your phone. And you just have these mental images of things that you just kind of mentally take a picture of and those things kind of stay with you. And uh, a lot of my friends and I used to ride together and then they all started having kids and that number dwindled. And so eventually it just kind of became a thing that we don't do as much. Um, interestingly enough, not to backtrack, but I had a, a, a similar experience that you had with Mary, uh, was my first experience with, with Mary as well, uh, which is funny. Um, I was on stage at her show, um, for, uh, Schwarzkopf professional at the time. And I was like the last 15 minutes of that show of, of the whole show, not just of our show, of like the whole show, everyone had gone home. There was 200 people left in the audience and I was the last 15 minutes on stage. It was like the most forgettable throwaway thing. I was just like, everybody come down, hang out with me. We got 15 minutes left. Let's just do something fun together. I did some men's haircuts and talking through some stuff. Uh, and then, uh, you know, she, she saw me on stage. Uh, I had to run to the airport immediately after I didn't even get to say hi or meet her or talk to her. Um, but when she came out, I was telling jokes and I was nervous cause that's what I do when I'm, when I'm nervous and she came out and she had her video camera going and she was recording me on her phone. I turned around. It's like, I'm pretty sure I've seen a porno star like this. And I was just like, Oh my God, I just got out loud. I didn't get to talk to her at all after I thought, Oh, you just made such an ass to yourself. You totally embarrassed yourself on that stage by career overdone. Six months later, or maybe not, maybe four months later, I was in a town called Appleton, Wisconsin, and I was teaching a class to six people. Okay. And educating sounds like a really sexy career. It sounds like a really exciting thing to get into, but it starts out really small. All right. It starts out really small. I had classes of two, three people. And one day I'm in Appleton, Wisconsin for six people. And it just felt so crazy. And I'm like, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing this for? And, uh, I was on my way back to the hotel and I, my phone rings and I answer it and it's like, Oh, hi, is this Maddie? I'm like, yes. It says, hi, it's Mary from behind the chair. And I was like, fuck off. Like I thought it was somebody messing with me. And she just paused for a second and goes, excuse me? <laughs> like, uh, is it, is it really? She's like, yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. I totally thought it was one of my friends. She and I had a conversation for like two hours about the hair industry and about education and all these things. And at the end of it, she invited me to participate in this thing called on tour that they were going to start doing. And it was at the Chicago theater and they put me on stage with people that are like legends, like legends, like huge names. And I was like looking around the room and I'm like, what am I 
doing here? I know I was so nervous and so intimidated by everyone. And I was just like, what am I doing here? And I just, I went out and I did my best. They partnered me with this guy, Mark Bustos, who's become one of my best friends. And we just went out and had fun and we just joked with each other and just had a good time. And I think that that was really the start of all this stuff for me in some ways, you know, because it was, it was more about having fun and making sure the people in the audience were having fun and sharing real, real simple things. You know what I mean? The real basic things that people often overlook without the desire to be showy, just the desire to like, we're going to teach you this and we're going to make it fun. And, um, and Mark loved that. We got along so well and we've been invited back ever since we've been invited to every BTC show since that first one, because we just, we, we let our egos go. We have so much fun. We make fun of ourselves. We do silly, stupid things. Like one time we made a video about dressing up in dinosaur costumes because like all of these other brands have these cool, sexy videos to support all their teams. And you know, it's Beyonce with a wind machine coming out and stuff like that. And we didn't have that. So, um, it's funny though, we, we did this, we did this show and, um, we were looking at everybody else's cool videos and we realized we didn't have a video and we thought, Oh God, we don't have a video. It's just going to be like out on stage. Oh, here's Maddie and Mark. And I thought to ourselves like, Oh my God, what are we going to do? So <laughs> we took my cell phone and we recorded us doing stupid stunts all around the place where the show was being held. So it like us doing cannonballs into the pool and the day when they were unpacking everything and we we're doing cannonballs into piles of cardboard and then we did cannonballs into bushes. And it was just like us doing as many stupid things as we could possibly think of. And it was, it was kind of funny. And we put it to the, the courtship of Eddie's father music, you know, people let me tell you about my best friend, you know that one. So we did that and we made this video and we were of course staying up super late and you know how when it gets later at night, things just seem funny and you just like, you just, we couldn't stop laughing and we're like, that's hilarious. I'll do this. Okay. That's hilarious. And then the next morning we were like, okay, well we gave them the video and we gave them the thing and we were standing backstage and we're like, we're pretty sure nobody's going to be here. Uh, Cause it was super early in the morning. It was like nine 30 in the morning. We were, and it was like a late party that night. And we're like, nobody's going to get up to see this thing. And so they start playing the video. And as soon as we start hearing the video, we heard, started hearing people kind of giggle and we're like, Oh God, there's people here. And <laughs> Mark looks at me. He's like, what if this is the dumbest idea we've ever had? <laughs> and we both started to panic. We're like, Oh my God, what have we done? And then we're like, people just start laughing and roaring and we're like, Oh my God, this is, this is terrible. We've totally, we've totally ruined everything. And then we walked out on stage, they announced our names. They get this thing called the voice of God. It's like the B O G they call it, right? The voiceover guy that goes, all right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Maddie Conrad and Mark Bustos, which by the way, you're never prepared to hear that. It sounds so weird to hear somebody with a voice like that introducing you on stage. It's like mind blowingly crazy. And here's this thing, and, and this is something I forgot to mention earlier, but I think bears mentioning. A lot of people want to get up on stage and do this, okay? And there's the funny thing is, once you get to the point where it's about to happen, massive butterflies and, like, massive stage fright and anxiety. Like, I get it every single time. Like, it's terrifying. Backstage is very safe. Outstage or on stage is not safe. It's very exposed. There's nothing safe about being on stage. Okay. Backstage is completely safe. On stage is not safe. It's risky. 
And between those two things, there is like this invisible curtain and it's built out of everything that you're afraid of. And the only way to get out on stage is to go through that invisible curtain of everything that you're afraid of potentially happening or everything that you're actually afraid of and walk through that and take the risk, absorb that risk. And I've found that it's a really great metaphor for most things in my life where everything you want is on the other side of fear, everything. And there is no such thing as reward without going through that curtain. You know, um, the interesting thing about it is, is that when we walked out in that moment through that curtain of fear, holy God, there was like 3000 people in the audience and they were screaming their heads off. And Mark and I just looked at each other and we're like, what just happened? Like, what, what is this? How did, what are we doing here? And then we just kind of went into our thing and did our thing. And, you know, we didn't take ourselves seriously. We made jokes and we made jokes about each other and we made jokes about our models and we just shared what we love. And we got off stage and there was this like lineup of like 600 people waiting to take selfies with you. And that's another thing you'll never, ever get used to is the idea that people want to take selfies with you. Um, it It was really weird. But then we really realized like, how are we going to top this? (laughs) The next show we did this video about us dressing up in dinosaur costumes. And then we walked out on stage in inflatable dinosaur costumes, which was hilarious. We did a catwalk with T-Rex arms. And then the next year we did a thing about dressing up like cowboys. And then we did a thing like, uh, you know, a guys versus girls thing where the girl beats the crap out of us. And, and all these things, and we're like, well, the stakes just kept getting higher and higher. And we realized that all of it started with this dumb idea of having a stupid video at the beginning that has nothing to do with hair or hairdressing or being cool or anything. It has everything to do with just bringing people's guard down and letting them have fun and letting them forget about the seriousness of this industry sometimes and just letting them realize that it's okay to just laugh at yourself and just no matter what the stakes, you know what I mean? No matter what the arena, laughing at yourself through it all is a great way of (laughs) self-preservation. Anyway, it's been pretty funny. I don't even, I have no idea what we're going to do this year. I have no idea. (laughs) Like, you see, the first one that when I got to see you, it was the basketball one when you did the girls against the guys. And it was stay gold, right? Stay gold. Is it stay gold 31? No, it was, uh, that was, that was Pope actually. Pope the barber. Pope the barber. Yeah. We, I love stay gold. Sophie and I've worked together a lot, but, but that year we had, we had Pope and uh, she was so funny. She beat the tar out of you guys in the video. Yeah. I just felt the funny thing is we do that. That tradition is, has remained. We do that on site. We fly in a day early and we spend a whole day filming that. And then my, my filming guy who just become used to like super high stress situations like that, we get there and then we just edit it all in one day, the whole thing. And we edit everything just by getting guys in a day early so we can film. And then then boom, we edit that and they put us on stage and, um, man, it's crazy. Like it's such a high stress thing, but it's also so much fun. And everybody now reaches out and they're like, okay, what are we doing this year? Like we're just. And then funny, here's the, here's the thing that's amazing to me too, is understanding like I'm a, I'm a crazy small company, like crazy small. And, uh, and uh, if it wasn't for those guys, if it wasn't for those artists that have been so generous to donate their time to me, you know, and it, like, these guys aren't, aren't showing up and getting paid. 
Like they're showing up to support. I wish I could pay them. You know what I mean? And I'm like, guys, here's what I want to do. I want to share the stage time that I have and try and highlight as many people as I can and try and give as many people as I can an opportunity to get out there and share their message. Um, and they're generous enough to show up and support me. I owe everything to those guys. Uh, the amount of support they've shown my brand is insane. The community support is just, uh, it's humbling. And, um, and I can't, uh, I'll never be able to repay them for that. And, and hopefully one day I will, but, uh, but I, yeah, it's been pretty extraordinary to see your friends have your back like that. And they're huge. I mean, like these guys are huge in their own right. Like Kevin Lutchman is one of the biggest educators on the planet. Mark Bustos, the guy is like a, he's an under armor spokesman. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, he's like the Steph Curry of hair. And then you have, uh, you have all these like crazy people showing up that are just like Pope and, and it, like everybody that's been on that stage with us has just been generous and extraordinary. And I, and I picked them not by their talent, but by their character, you know, um, all of them are extraordinary people and they care about their community. They care about hairdressers. They care about, making people less afraid. Yeah, this has been, yeah. honestly, it brought me back to center. Um, hugely, <laughs> conversation with my, with my buddies, my best friend since uh, fourth grade, shout out to Will Simmons. Um, he's going to be on the podcast, but I'll have to bleep him every second word because the dude, uh, honestly, like we grew up together and his, his F-bombs are, uh, are, are prevalent. Um, I'm no slouch. I've been told. I, I I think I hold the current record for most amount of f words on stage at a BTC show. <laughs> but the nice thing about working for yourself is you can't get fired. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Our department. I'm going to put it in the uh, the special filing cabinet that's round and black and sitting right in the corner. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Yeah. My buddy and I will. We were talking. You know, it was. Um, I think that there's points in your life where you where you need to hear, and I think that every listener out there needs to, uh, at some point, needs to hear this. As far as like, honestly, guys, if you want to be the coolest person in the room, um, be yourself. And yeah. Don't try and be cool. Just be yourself. And my pop, I mean, I, I always try to finish this thing off with with things from my pop. So I'm going to say one from my pop. And then I want you to say something either from your dad or your granddad, who is your influence. My pops is big. I want you to meet my pops, Maddie. Yeah. My pops is hilarious. He has those, the funny sayings. Like he has this one saying, he's like, man, that's so silly. It's like sniffing parts out of a bus seat. And I was like, what did that, did you even say? But then I thought about it and I was like, that would be a silly thing to do. So I guess it was, I mean, it made sense. He said, um, what else did he say? Um, uh, I'll, I'll think of one, but I mean, the thing that he, I talk to him every single day. And the thing that, that comes to me as far as hearing you is the thing that my pop says to me all the time, uh, almost every single day is um, that you're enough. Like you as a person are enough and you don't need to be out there striving. You just need to be abiding in your purpose and allowing who you are meant to be, to be there and that you're perfectly made and that you're wonderfully made. And I heard that through your whole message. Not, I mean, you didn't write out that message. We just had a conversation. But mm. what I heard through all of your character and what you were saying is, I mean, honestly, like drop your guard. Don't take it so serious. Have a good time. And when you have a good time, guess what, guys? 
then you'll find yourself at the top, not because you're focused on it, but because you're willing to do all the work. Yeah. So um, big shout out to my pop. Maddie, bring us home with something from your pop, your grandpa, um, and maybe even if you want to finish with the message uh, to these people of what you want to be able to have, the Victory Barber brand. Uh, Victory, did I say it right? I said it right, right? Victory, yeah. Victory Barber and Brand. Victory Barber and Brand. That's who sponsored this podcast. <laughs> they sponsored I get the name right now. <laughs> yeah, definitely. On the podcast is what it is. So do me the favor. Bring us home uh, with, with something and, uh, you know, from your uh, pop or your grandpa. And then let's get a message from Maddie uh, out to your whole audience. Yeah, I think the thing uh, from that is that character is what you're doing when no one's looking. And I think that, um, like I said, that the things that you will ultimately find fulfilling for yourself are the things that are often done in private and the things that aren't done for showing anyone else. Um, there's a reward in it, you know, and I've, I've, I've learned that throughout my life. And I think that it's a good thing to maintain. Um, so far as the message for me, uh, I think I want to echo what your pop said. Obviously it's like you are enough, but I think the thing is uh, that I want to get out to people is that, that trust in the process and be patient. I think everybody these days is very eagerly comparing themselves so much to each other. And comparison is the thief of joy. You know, everybody can compare themselves to somebody that has more or has the appearance of a better life or the appearance of something else, but nobody's life is any better than anyone else's. It's just, they have a different collection of problems. And I think what's really important is that when you are starting out at chapter one to live through chapter one, not hoping to have chapter one end up as someone else's chapter 25. You know, when you're brand new at one, at one year in this, you can't compare yourself to my 25 years in this or other people's 10 years in this. You have to go through the process of being in one year. And I, my one year was terrible. I was terrible. Like <laughs> these things will come, you know, and the process of learning them is what life is all about. The process of acquiring knowledge and acquiring wisdom. Uh, this is the purpose. This is, this is what the journey is about. And you don't get to have it all at once. You have to earn it. And sometimes you have to earn it through really hard, shitty things. And what I will tell you is that I have learned the longer I've lived that a lot of the purpose of life or a lot of the outcome of life is about giving purpose to suffering. You know, uh, I think there's no greater vindication for suffering than purpose. And I see uh, in my own life the purpose of the, my my upbringing, my, my childhood where I was bullied, I, I've managed to find purpose of that. I've managed to give that reason for happening. I've, I've managed to turn that into a good thing. And I think that that's one of the greatest um, aspirations of life is to, to find a way to give purpose to your suffering. Maybe you're going through something terrible or something tragic or something difficult and you, you don't see the, the sense in it or you don't see the justice in it. But on a long enough timeline, I really believe that those things happen and are given purpose in your life to help other people or to prepare you for something else or transform you into what you need to be. And life is about this constant transformation. And so just trust in the process and be patient and it'll come. I thank you for 
being on the podcast, man. You are absolutely phenomenal. Um, hmm. I do want to finish with the quote from your grandfather, which I will never let anyone be more of a gentleman than I. Mr. Matty Conrad, you're off the hot seat. Thank you for being on the Kelly Cardenas podcast. Tune in, subscribe, and make sure that you give Matty Conrad a five-star rating. This guy, seriously, I need to give you a 10-star rating, man. You are, you, you really warmed my heart. I got to get home Thanks. to my kids because now I got to, you know, I'll get home off the podcast and my wife will be like, uh, you know, I'll be like, yo, I just talked to Maddie. I'm just on fire. And she'll be like, yeah, you need to take out the trash. So uh, that's <laughs> I actually got to go take out the trash right now. So I got you. I got some, I got to go spend some time and, uh, and clean up my place too and take care of my girl. So thanks for having me, man. It's been a real pleasure, honestly. Love you, brother. Have a wonderful day. We will see you soon. Kelly Cardenas podcast, guys. Love you. Peace. <laughs>